curse. Welcome to No Prize from God, episode 33. No Prize from God features conversations with creative people about belief, unbelief, and everything between. I'm your host, Ryan J. Downey, and my guest this episode is Aaron Weaver, drummer and co-founder for the band Wolves in the Throne Room. It has been almost two years since I posted a new episode of No Prize from God, and that was really only two episodes in the spring of 2021. Prior to that, I hadn't really been on any kind of regular schedule since 2020. That is going to change in 2023, at least that is the intention. Doing this podcast is one of my favorite things to do. There's just been some things that have gotten in the way, but I'm back on track. And in fact, I have a number of episodes in the bank. I pride myself on the idea that these conversations are evergreen. They're not tied to any specific album, movie, or book release. I also plan to start getting episodes out of my other podcasts with increasing regularity. If you want to check those out, those are Speak and Destroy, the first podcast featuring interviews about Metallica, Pop Curse, Musicians Talking Movies, and over with the fine folks at KnotFest, The Disc Dive, where different artists go through their entire discography with me. In this conversation, Aaron talks about the deep-rooted spirituality of his American black metal band, which he co-founded with his brother Nathan. Wolves in the Throne Room make iconoclastic, even for black metal, and often ritualistic music meant to evoke the forests and mountains around them in the Pacific Northwest. In this in-depth conversation, Aaron speaks candidly about his personal experiences and the evolution of his ideas, and he's a curious guy, so he asked me a lot of questions as well. You can check out the No Prize from God playlist for the podcast on Spotify, where I have a bunch of music that really, sort of songs that are anchored around the big questions that are discussed in these conversations. You can also follow No Prize from God on social media. You can keep up with me and find all of my socials at ryanjdowney.com. And last, but certainly not least, if you enjoy this podcast, please leave it a five-star rating and a nice review on your preferred podcast platform of choice. So here it is, my conversation with Aaron Weaver of Wolves in the Throne Room. This is No Prize from God.
what were your earliest experiences with spiritual traditions, faith, you know, life's big questions? What sort of ideas were you raised with? What was around when you were a kid? That's, that's a good question. Let me think about that. A bunch of different threads. So quite syncretic, I suppose. I guess we went to church. We went to a Lutheran church. Miserable experience. Um, you know, I think in those days, my parents were having to still appease my grandparents. There was still a such a strong cultural expectation about church participation that um, to whatever, not be baptized, not have that performative religiosity, religiosity, no, that's not right. But I'm just going to kind of go with it. (laughs) It's close enough, I think. Religiosity? There you go. That that sounds better. Um, It's very much expected. And um, and it always rang so hollow and was always a very, I think, the same experience most kids have of just being super bored being super annoyed not to have to, not to be able to be home chilling out Sunday morning to have to put on nice clothes, whatever that means, comb your hair. So there was that, there was that part of it. We went to Sunday school. There was like sermons and stuff. I always sort of tolerated it and um, was willing to kind of go along, but Nathan, my brother, who's also involved in the throne room, you, I'm sure you know, was always much more rebellious. And it was just like, fuck this, this is so stupid. And I think had a more visceral anger about being subjected to this sort of very musty, boring, and untrue religious or spiritual experience. So there was that thread. Another piece of it is that my mom especially is a very um, spiritually open person. And in some ways it's kind of like, She's kind of one of those crystal moms, you know? She's got a lot of crystals around the house. She does Reiki. Mm. Um, she has like a lot of dreams. It's like oftentimes kind of tripped out, um, oftentimes kind of ungrounded and kind of out there in the spiritual world. And now that I'm an adult, an initiated man, I see that like, oh, that's what was going on. She was kind of tripping out there for a while when we were kids or even recently. And her brother, my uncle, was also a very magical person. He was like a proper magician, like a practicing occultist and magician in his way. Oh, wow. Um, as well as being a, just an all around spiritual seeker. Like I can just imagine what his life was like in the seventies and eighties during these sort of wild times. Um, he was into all the different stuff. He was into Scientology. He was into this channeler. He was into Ramtha. He was into going to Brazil to work with, with John of God, like, you know, whatever these, um, on this uh, kind of uh, quintessential seeker path. Um, and those are big influences, just being in that space where like prayer is real, magic is real, energy is real, um, and are things that can be worked with. It was never really explicitly discussed, but it was just kind of in the air with my mom and her side of the family. And then the third thread is my own personal experience with opening up to the realm of mythology and spirit. And I was always really curious and open to it. I was like a big reader as a kid, always reading history or mythology for my primary um, interests. 
And I think the thing that made the biggest impact, or at least the thing that has the most kind of uh, have the most memories about, is watching the uh, Power of Myth series on PBS mm. with uh, Bill Moyers and Joseph Campbell, mm-hmm. and having the book, like the original first pressing of the Power of Myth, the one with the black cover with the green pinstripe and the five-legged Chinese golden imperial dragon emblazoned on the front, which I still have and is one of the only books I own. I only own like five or six books. And that is one of the books because that was my entryway to my own exploration and journey into the realms of mythology, spirit, um, magic. About how old were you when you were discovering that? Um, Super young. Like I was a voracious reader at a very young age. Mm, So like, yeah, five, six, seven, like starting to look at these kind of books. Um, yeah, man, in those days, there was a lot of like books that were these initiatory tools um, and oftentimes kind of like, you know, a little bit cheesy. Like there was that, I don't know if you said you had it in your household, but that Time Life series, like the Myths and Legends series, they were kind of bound in. I, kind of I remember like, those. We didn't have them, but I remember them being around. Yeah. 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 And then the one that we had was the, uh, I think it's like the Wizards one. It's got the red cover with this Archmage on the front. Yeah, I loved those kind of books, these sort of like things that uh, strode the line between, you know, very sort of, um, you know, fairy tale-ish, uh, childish storytelling, but also at the same time, like telling real stories and myths. And they did kind of have a certain energy to them. Yeah, those books were written by actual occultists and actual uh, historians of mythology and religion. So there was, I think, a um, living thread that could be connected to through that series of books and you know a bunch of other stuff that was available to us kids in the 80s sort of simultaneous with that uh, you know in the you and i i think about the same age and have have very similar experiences with this you know uh, what do you remember about like the satanic panic stuff that was happening uh, you know, oh totally phil, I, phil donahue show and you know all that sort of stuff i totally remember it and um i mean i was a big uh dungeons and dragons mm. player Mm-hmm. and was you know super nerdy or whatever into second to lord of the rings and i was just about to say was tolkien part of all this for you too 100 100 percent yeah tolkien and c.s lewis were both i mean i was in elementary school and and that was that was yeah. my introduction yeah, to too. a lot of this stuff was those two you know fantasy worlds yeah me too and yeah i definitely remember the satanic panic occurring and like whatever my come home from school and my mom's folding laundry and like Phil Donahue or whatever is on. And like hearing these like terrifying stories, it would definitely like, I think in, in retrospect, it's a bit traumatizing to be exposed mm-hmm. to these like un, unspeakable images. <laughs> um, yeah, it was, a, it was a very weird cultural moment. I don't know, what was your experience with the satanic panic? Yeah, my, mine was, was very similar. I remember it being kind of omnipresent uh, for just a brief, period but where it was dominating talk shows and it'd be a combination of these people you know i i I guess a bit like you know when you would see interviews with people who who say they've been visited by extraterrestrials right like you would have these like these fantastical tales of you know these these cults that were operating just out of view in everyday society like they're all right around the corner yeah. You know, or, or sort of like, you know, fast forward a couple of decades in post 9-11 world where 
so many of us were going about our day expecting that we would be attacked by terrorists at like the shopping mall in Kansas, you know, and it's like just sort of the hyperbole and, and the exaggeration, but also knowing, you know, that there was some, there were some having a sense that there was, there was some kind of uh, tangible reality to what was being portrayed. And you would see on the talk show circuits, you know, Levian Satanists and, you know, people who were articulate and well-spoken and were presenting like an alternate view to the sensationalized sort of exploitative uh, version of it. So I, I remember being fascinated by it. And of course this was, there wasn't the internet. There weren't like a lot of places you could really go to get any kind of balanced view on any of this stuff. So you had to take a lot of the, the shock value stuff at face value. You know, obviously we're not old enough to have grown up with, you know, Helter Skelter and the, and the Manson family hysteria, but we are old enough to have, I mean, was it Geraldo? Like there was like a big Charlie Manson interview when we were kids that was. I remember that. Yeah. yeah. And so I remember also being kind of fascinated by that. And of course not learning until well into adulthood, how to separate the truth from fiction of, of those, I guess you could say American mythology, right? Like some of those Indeed. stories became part of our, our fabric. So I, I was just going to ask, so what was, how did that stuff, because for me, I think growing up in the Midwest and this, you know, Judeo-Christian, my dad referred to himself as a recovering Catholic. So I had like this Irish Catholic cultural thing on my dad's side and then more of a Protestant Presbyterian thing on my mom's side. And my mom was kind of a boarding and Christian at one point. So having those ideas sort of already there gave me like a real kind of fascination, but also fear of the satanic panic stuff that was happening um, or anything, any kind of collision with, uh, you know, even going into like a new age bookstore in Indianapolis when I'm like, you know, 14 felt like a, like a, you know, smelling incense and seeing crystals. Like I had this like attraction slash aversion. I can't really think of too many other things in life, maybe horror films where it's that same combination of like fear but excitement and yeah i'm curious where that yes definitely you. no i can identify with that for sure yeah because you know if you i mean i read the bible as a like a scholarly you know as a young scholar and was wanting to take it apart logically and there's all these prohibitions against witchcraft and divination and uh magic of all sorts um, and if you do move into that space, if you do avail yourself to those tools, well, then you're on this slippery slope. And it might, it might appear all fun and games in the beginning, but then, of course, uh, eventually you will find yourself at, you know, the satanic um, ritual where babies uh, are being spit roasted and, and uh, enjoyed for their tasty flesh. Yeah, cats, cats hanging from telephone poles and, and such. Indeed. Um, yeah, I've got, and it's taken a long time for me to unpack that in myself because I definitely do still have, um, it's really faded and it might be almost gone, but I still do have that Christian like imprinting coming down from my ancestral lineages of fear of Satan, fear of being uh, internal damnation, the fear of hell. Um, I've got a lot of anger about that, that that was imprinted in me as a young age because um, I just don't believe that story at all. And I think that 
it's um, just really tragic that human beings are exposed to those sort of lies, which I consider them to be. But at the same time, I feel somewhat grateful that I'm of a generation who's able to release myself from those old stories, which was definitely not possible for previous generations because the religion is so intimately woven into, into life and into culture. Um, and we're just in this very unique modern time where I think we are able to unhook ourselves from these old co religious cultural traditions, these old stories, and have a lot more freedom in our own lives. I, I didn't mean to sidetrack us. I love that you gave me those three different threads when that, as those things coalesced. And I, I would imagine also for you, music played a role here as music is becoming more important in your life and, and being attracted to different genres that explore a lot of these ideas, a lot of these questions, a lot of these traditions, whether it's reacting against and kind of sharing in that anger you described or delving into these other traditions or a mixture of all of the above. Uh, where did that, what role did that uh, play for you along your journey, so to speak? I had two interesting initiations around the age of 14, 15. The first of which, as you alluded to correctly, is music, of course, because I think we spoke in the last podcast, the first heavy music we got into was the Black Album in 1991. Mm -hmm. And then death metal after that. And of course, the Florida death metal scene was steeped in the, the darkest side of the occult, mm -hmm. this love, Lovecraftian horrific visions of, uh, of interdimensional coldness, um, interstellar coldness, the old ones, all this sort of business. And I'm, it's actually interesting to talk about because I've never really thought about it, like how I was at the time engaging with that material. Because now it's just, I've never really been that interested in like the kind of disgusting nature of death metal or like the mm. evil side of death metal. Um, it never really hit me then. And it's, you know, at this point in my life as a 44 year old man, this doesn't have a place in my worldview and my, my spiritual life. Um, I can see how it would um, if you were like on the path of being like a modern day Nagasadu or something or an Agori Sadu, someone who is enraptured and in constant communication with the darkest side of existence with the forces of putrefaction and decay, death, uh, madness, but that's just not my path. And I guess for that reason, that music never really penetrated me that deeply. Like I was never into like Morbid Angel as like magic. Mm. I liked it as, I guess I was into the technical aspects of it, I suppose. I liked the um, brutality of the playing. I liked the riffs, I liked the drumming. Um, but as far as the imagery and the lyrical content and the, you know, the energetic transmission, this quotation marks, evil transmission, it didn't really hit me. Like it didn't really have a place in my mind because I was much more, was and still am, on the Tolkien side of things. Mm. I was much more into, oh, high fantasy, dragons, and a, a very beautiful image, like a, an image of using these worlds of fantasy and imagination, Dungeons and Dragons, music, whatever, to conjure a beautiful image, to conjure an image that I want, in, almost in a way of, it's like an act of creation in my mind, 
that part of me believes will actually come to pass in, in the three-dimensional reality. Mm. Um, another important initiation around that time when Nathan and I were rocking out to the morbid angel and deicide, maybe him a little bit, I think it penetrated him a bit deeper. Um, but for me, it was always just kind of, I always could tell it was kind of put on or that's how I took it. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember, I remember so clearly being in chemistry class. So it would have been maybe 15 and a friend brought in modern primitives, the research magazine. I guess it's a book, but it was called research magazine about, it was about industrial culture. So throbbing gristle, uh, that whole scene. There's, there's some and, kind um, of serendipity or something in there about that being chemistry class, <laughs> like alchemy. Indeed, and, indeed. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I didn't make that connection. But I mean, that's the one where like they have, it's, it's the body modification one. Mm. And so like, I think the first page I remember opening to is a guy that had taken his penis and split it in half and like a piercing in each tip of this new double cock that he'd created for himself. And that was, that was an initiation, like, holy mackerel. Like that is like, not chemistry class that is not normal human life there is something really extreme other really extreme possibilities and then i immediately saw the resonance with my interest in his history anthropology other cultures it uh, it resonated so clear like oh this is what i see in other cultures and it sparked something like ah this is real like this is like really living life in the deepest way and letting ourselves be moved by these deep archetypal forces in a way that is not allowed or appropriate in fucking Reagan or Clinton era America. It sounds to me like pretty early in your journey, because I found a lot of us, for better or worse, and not to put a value judgment on it in any direction, but oftentimes we, and I've been caught in this, we tend to define ourselves sometimes in, in, in counterculture more by what we're against and what we're not and what we oppose than by what yeah. we are and, and what we're for. And I think there's a, a degree of that, which is certainly important. And I think, you know, breaks us out of this sort of mainstream stupor uh, philosophically, ideologically, culturally. But at a certain point, I think there's a, a, a moment of maturity and of, uh, more of a holistic approach where we have to kind of get over that hill and start identifying with like, well, what am I for? Like, I know what I reject. I know what I'm against. I know what I oppose, uh, but what, but what am I, what am I about? Because uh, I, I don't think that there's a real fulfilling life in just being an adversary to uh, something else, you know, cause in that sense, you're kind of letting that, that thing is still defining you and still directing Indeed. you. It seems like you figured yeah. this out really early <laughs> compared to a lot of our peers. I, indeed, yeah, I know. I saw that from a very early age. Um, like I've always have been and still am like, like Rivendell. I mean, that's, that's, what I, that's what I want. I want a place of beauty and magic and music and deep connection to spirit and love, really. That has been very consistent my entire life. And I've always looked at like, you know, Satanists, for instance, who are the, you know, they play the role of the adversary. You just use that word, which is very appropriate. Um, They exist purely in this reactive role. Like there's Mm -hmm. Christ and Jesus and there's Christ and, and God and the Holy Spirit and we are against you. 
And um, I saw a, fa a deep fallacy in that um, from the beginning, uh, from the first time I became aware of it and um, have never, just never bought into it. I told, yeah, and like you said, like I do think that's an important phase for a lot of people to go through. Mm -hmm. I never did for whatever reason. Um, I yeah. always felt very on on purpose from my earliest uh, my earliest awareness of myself. And that's cool because I think you know when we look at the the tradition, if you will, of say the Scandinavian black metal groups, and you know certainly some of the uh, the larger than life characters from that movement that I've had on this podcast all of them much more quickly than their audiences and in, in, in some instances eventually yeah. kind of got to this, whether it was connecting to a deep rooted mysticism or spirituality, like the traditions uh, of their native soil or, or what have you, you know, I, I understand the visceral, the, the kind of magic involved in like burning down a church, you know? Yeah. But it's also like it, it, that, that can't, there's got to be more than that for me personally, right? Like you have to eventually get beyond that or else, yeah, you're being led by, you're still kind of playing under someone else's rules, I guess. Yeah, exactly. You're playing someone else's game. And until you make your own game, until you make your own rules, until you make your own world that you can abide within with your people, then you'll continue to be at the under the command and control of your adversaries. Mm. I 100% believe that. So where would you say, I love these, I love that you have these kind of clearly defined uh, initiations. So where would you say you started to put together what would be kind of your own, your own worldview, I guess, your own uh, personal practice and how you engage with reality really? Well, I had a big, another initiation around the age of 21. So I went to school, like four years of college. And that was a very like intellectual time in life. Um, I was very much in my head, embarrassingly so, swept up in whatever, critical theory or um, sort of leftist political philosophical ideas trying to read Foucault and all this sort of stuff, Derrida. Not really resonating with it, but that was just kind of the culture of the time. Um, to be a punk, to be like a leftist, to be an anti-civilization person, this was just kind of the, the, the culture that was available. Um, and I definitely would say at that time, I was really not awake to myself. Still very much like searching and um, very disconnected from a truth. I think I was connected to my truth as a younger person, as a kid, and then lost that in, you know, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21 years old. Mm. I really felt really lost. When I was 21, I moved to Washington, D.C. and always had, I just had the notion like, oh, I'll just, I've got friends that work at publishing, I have friends that work at Harper's or the New York Times or whatever. I'll, do, I'll be in that world, this sort of leftist intellectual world. I lived there for a year and just realized mostly I think through listening to music through listening to black metal that this was not going to work that this was not where I'm not sure what my path is but this is not it so I moved back to Olympia and um, two very important things happened around the age of I think 22 or 23 um, we 
me and my brother bought a big piece of land um, outside of Olympia, this old farm. And um, I got really into gardening and farming and natural building and um, got kind of focused my intellectual pursuits more on anti-civilization narratives and um, ecological narratives and started Wolves in the Throne Room. Like it was kind of nascent for a couple of years, but the first real Wolves in the Throne of Music came together in 2003. Like the stuff that became the, the first demos as we were just working it out. Um, and so that was, a, that was a turning point where I, I put aside the sort of intellectual um, East Coast leftism, um, which I had been kind of immersed in during my college years, which happens to a lot of people. Mm -hmm. and realize, oh, there's this other path that I'm going to go on. And it's connected to the earth. It's connected to um, finding a path, an earth path that's informed by um, developing a relationship with place. Um, and that's where I really made a commitment to Cascadia, to the this bioregion where we live. And that was partly a philosophical thing at that point, because um, Eugene, Oregon was a hotbed of anarcho-primitivism mm -hmm. philosophy. Um, like John Zerzan is the, the most well-known name. And that was just the, it was the culture of the time um, to have this anti-capitalist, anti-modern, anti-civilization worldview, but it was shot through with magic and spirituality as well. It was shot mm -hmm. through with, well, we should start observing the, the um, equinoxes and solstices. We should start doing magic in the forest. We should start doing restorative healing magic and clear cuts. We should um, uh, cast spells on the evildoers in the world who are voraciously consuming the last bits of wildness that continue to exist. We should have this adversarial magical um, battle with uh, what I did and still to consider and still do consider to be evil forces. Um, yeah, and that, that went on. Then we started Wolves in the Throne Room and that became the focus of the work. Um, when before it was kind of a bit murky as to what form it, it, the work would take or the path would take, um, music became the, the tool and the vessel for moving forward. Uh, two questions that raises in, in listening to that. And by the way, I once again am, am struck by and quite enjoying uh, the way that you're able to articulate uh, so much of this and communicate it. It's amazing. Uh, it's a gift. Uh, the two, two questions that that raises. One is going backwards a little bit. You mentioned how there was something about black metal, I assume kind of intangible, that made you realize pursuing that, you know, scholarly kind of academic, as you, as you described, you know, East Coast kind of uh, leftism, just wasn't going to be your path. Is that, does this have to do with the way that you, that the music resonated with you and sort of, and moved you in a spiritual way versus the intellectual stimulation maybe that you were getting from books and, uh, you know, I, I certainly had a period in my life where, um, you know, people's history of the United States and, and Chomsky and like that might as <laughs> that might as well have been a yeah. religion, you know, for totally. a, a moment it is. there. Um, yeah, a, cu a cult. Uh, yes. So was it the, 
do you feel that there was something spiritual that was moving then through black metal music and, and that sort of thing that was pulling Definitely. you in a different way? 100%. It was the first time that music had really connected with my heart. Mm. Um, kind of going back to, you know, listening to death metal, I understood it intellectually. Like yeah. I understood it as, oh, this is kind of cool that they're singing songs about H.P. Lovecraft and I like H.P. Lovecraft and I like reading it very like in the head, very intellectual. Mm -hmm. But black metal was hitting me in a different place. It was hitting me in my heart, hitting me in my, you know, if, if we want to get into chakra systems or whatever, which sure, I'm willing to, I think it's a useful map. It hit me in my root. It was like um, touching something that was much, much deeper and older in myself. Mm -hmm. And it felt like it was coming from a deeper and older place um, that had some, had more authority. Like, and all of a sudden these intellectual ideas just kind of seemed like the, I don't know, the scum floating on top of the ocean, but the truth is in the depths, mm. um, at the bottom. Um, and yeah, black metal was, if, yeah, if, if I felt it in my body, I felt it somatically and I felt it magically as well. Like it, it, I could tell like, oh, this is magic. They're casting spells. Like they're doing work in the unseen world in a very, um, not always the way that I would do it, but I could appreciate it. Like, oh, like, cool. Like I can see what, I can see what you're doing there. I can begin to like look into that world too, that unseen world of magic and begin to understand the mechanisms of how spell work occurs or how music can affect change in the world in this specific way, the specific way that you see in black metal that you don't see in other genres. And this dovetails nicely into the second thought, the second question that I had and what you were saying. My experience with uh, folks that I've known and grew up with that um, became kind of embroiled in the anarcho-primitivism I guess you could say lifestyle or, or, or viewpoints. One of the things that I couldn't relate to and would, would, would come up against and would create schism, I suppose, in some of those conversations. And this could just be the experience of just the, the people that I knew, but they were very uh, exceedingly militantly secular. So what? So yeah. where they were coming at it from this approach of uh, veganism or raw foodism, and and uh, you know, yeah, this sort of neo primitive, uh, letting the earth kind of take back over, you know, all this stuff that you would associate right with you know deconstructionism with civilization, or uh, sometimes even this turning into uh, direct action and you know destroying bulldozers and you know all that sort of stuff right uh people going to jail for those kind of things i i always identified more with say uh you know the move activists in philadelphia or you know these different sects that believed a lot of those things but were also had a spiritual component and i found that you know in the midwest anyway people that i knew who were coming from kind of the hardcore punk scene who would get more into this you know radical environmentalism and and uh, anarcho-primitivism, just so secular, just so the notion of anything magical, spiritual was hokey to them. It was, uh, 
passe. It was to be mocked and laughed at. And a lot of that, I think, was coming from this very natural, understandable reactionaryism to the evangelical Puritan, you know, traditions of their parents, right, that they had grown up with and the stuff that they're rejecting. But yeah. um, yeah, when I hear this stuff from you, I hear the, the spiritual side intrinsically, like, like inseparable, like wrapped up in it. And that's so much more intriguing to me because I never quite understood the, how you could be that into the earth, that into animals, and yet discount, as you say, the unseen world. You know, these are people Indeed. who I think see themselves as very scientific and very rational and, and yeah. you know, and then all of that, all the rest of this is to be discarded. And I always had this like aversion to throwing out the baby with the bathwater where I just was like, man, but how arrogant for, for me to think that I've figured out more than, you know, Malcolm X or Martin Luther King or, <laughs> you know what I mean? People who kept, sure. who were these radicals who still maintain some sort of connection to the spiritual. So, yeah, I'd love to hear well, your that thoughts. Was not, yeah. That. Yeah, totally. I mean, that was, I know what you mean. Like I knew those kids, those mm -hmm. like kind of East coast or Midwest mm -hmm. ALF rad radical vegan yes. um, earth, earth crisis, like that kind of scene. Yeah. We had a very, very different thing going on because we were children of the West coast and um, yeah, magic and paganism was just woven into it. And I mm -hmm. think that um, I think someone like Starhawk was central to like the, um, the philosophical underpinnings of what people were doing um, in those days, um, reincorporating and reclaiming, which is I think the name of her book or her movement, reclaiming paganism mm. and reclaiming a spiritual, capital S, spiritual connection to the earth and to the spirits, to the ancestors. That was always a part of it. That was a part of the forest defense movement that was the part that was what was driving the, you know, the ELF actions, like the green scare mm. people that went to jail for doing various things in the West coast. Those people were like into magic. They were into like, um, they were like receiving transmissions from the elves to, to, um, to take the actions that they did, mm. or at least they thought they did. Maybe they were just smoking right. a lot of weed, hard to say, <laughs> but, um, but yeah, that was always there. So Nathan, I credit Nathan with kind of starting Wolves in the Throne Room. I think that he like opened the door or like found a way to bring all of our shared interests together into a musical project that we could both work within. And it was, he was at an Earth First gathering or a, I'm sorry, mm -hmm. Earth Liberation Front gathering, mm -hmm. which was in the Gifford Pinchot forest way out there. And so, I mean, classic early 2000s crusty experience where there's like skill shares and people are teaching about how to spike trees or teaching about how to build um, you know, hard structures to prevent logging from occurring, teaching about uh, how to keep your mouth shut around the cops, um, security culture, which was like really important at the time because people were getting their lines bugged and people mm -hmm. were getting arrested and going to jail for a long time for this stuff. Um, but at the same time, it was a psychedelic gathering. People were on mushrooms, people were on acid, people were doing ritual. There's a few lyrics in various Wolves and Thrones songs that speak to that to that um, gathering uh, about some ritual events that Nathan occurred that made a big impression on him mm -hmm. and, um, and were and helped birth wolves in the throne room. This, which as we conceived at the time, it was this 
meeting of European black metal, which had this kind of raw spirituality and magic in it, but it wasn't quite our flavor because we're not gonna try to be Vikings. We're not gonna try to sing songs about Satan. We just have no connection to that manifestation, but there's still something there. Along with our West Coast anarcho-primitivist, crusty, anti-civilization, uh, earth first direct action culture that we were a part of and adjacent to um, and bring it together in a way that is really true to us. Um, that is not trying to be anything other than just what we are. Like, this is who we are. This is where this is, um, these are our influences. This is our um, philosophical, the uh, philosophical background, but we're going to make something that's coming from our own hearts. And you know, what's, what's so great about that to me is that that's ultimately more, even we're talking about the spiritual, but it's so much more pragmatic to approach it that way, rather than, as you said, try to adopt these, uh, these things that aren't native to you, no, no pun intended. Uh, and to, it feels much more sustainable, like there's much more longevity, there's much more to build and explore, and it's more rooted in something. Uh, I mean, I think it's, I wish that more activists, for lack of a better term, would approach it in a similar way that Wolves has. Um, so yeah, I think that's, it's phenomenal. It just seems so much smarter. <laughs> yeah, Ben, you're right. I think uh, you use the word longevity and that really hits home for me because I mean, this is, this mute, there's not a difference between me and the music. It's just where I am in my life, what I'm going through spiritually, where my mind is at, what I believe, what I want to, bring into being in my life, what, I've, my, what my visions are. And so there's not like an expiration date on that. Like I will continue to have those same drives and desires and impulses and upwellings until I uh, slough off the mortal coil. Um, it's not like I have to maintain an image there. It's just, mm. it is what it is. Like here mm. I am. Um, so that feels really good. It feels like um, there's not this question of like, ah, oh, does this feel true to me anymore? Um, it'd be like asking, do I feel true to myself? Yeah. Which, you know, I suppose those questions do come up sometimes, but um, rarely. Well, speak to me a little bit about from your perspective, what, what's missing from, uh, you know, radical environmentalism and, uh, you know, environmental justice and those sort of movements. What are they missing out on when they approach it from a completely secular standpoint i think uh nourishment and strength i think that the spirit of the earth the spirits of the earth actually can nourish us and support us in our work especially when we're doing hard dangerous or difficult work whether that's working in the recording studio every day and it's exhausting or whether you're taking direct action in the forest which people are doing now in canada there's a big direct action movement to protect the last little bits of old growth on Vancouver Island. Um, the earth and the spirits of the earth can be a supportive force um, because, um, how do I put this? Like, I just, I, I guess I just rely on that so much in my own life. Like I know that when I'm feeling really drained and exhausted or um, lost or like I've lost vision and I don't know what to do next, I can call upon a deeper wisdom that's beyond me. 
that I really trust. Like I don't completely trust myself to always know what's right or to always have the perfect idea of um, how I should expend my energy, what my long-term projects should be, but I should be, but I do trust my ancestors and I do trust the spirits of the earth um, to give me vision in my mind's eye and my dreams um, in not in altered states uh, to provide that guidance and nourishment and strength to be on the right path. What are some practices that you employ in your everyday life or uh, perhaps even um, less regularly, but, you know, in, in cycles, uh, what, what are some, I, I guess, I guess rituals would be the right word, but what are things that you can do to commune with this, the bigger picture the larger um, network of, of this stuff to recenter yourself? Yeah, you could, yeah, good question. I mean, I've done a bunch over the years. I'm not, I'm not the kind of person that does one thing. I really kind of need, I get bored really easily. And I always jump around from one thing to the next, which I, I mean, I don't think there's any problem with that approach. Um, and so I've done a lot over the years. I will say that as a young man, I think having a couple of psychedelic experiences um, made a really big difference in my life in terms of, you know, the door was open a little bit and I could kind of peek in and I was receiving this nourishment and this connection from the spirit world and my ancestors. Um, but a few, a, a few solid doses of um, psychedelic mushrooms helped a lot. Um, I don't think that plant medicine like that, I mean, I, I, I kind of think I won't ever do psychedelics again. Mm. There's that old adage, I think it comes from Terence McKenna that with psychedelics, once you get the message, hang up the phone. Like you don't need to keep, you know, I know yeah. that I don't need to I've keep I've never heard receiving. that, but that's good. That's great. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, I just don't, I, I get it. Like I get it. And I, and I see now there's other ways to get in exactly that same space in a mm. more grounded way. Um, and grounding is super important for me because I have the tendency to get lost in the spirit world um, in ways that are not um, beneficial or safe or pleasant for me. Mm. Um, so, I mean, that's not the kind of thing I can recommend to anyone or say that anyone should do, but certainly having like a few big ripping open experiences um, helped me. I mean, it opened my heart. It opened me up to my somatic experience in a, in a much more accessible way. And um, just gave me perspective on the spirit world, the unseen world, the other dimensions of reality that I couldn't imagine not having that knowledge or not having that lived um, experience of those sort of dimensions. That being said, I think it's absolutely possible to have exactly that same opening and transformation through a variety of other means that don't necessarily involve any um, plant medicine or psychedelics of any kind. Um, so that was important. I mean, as a younger person to have some kind of intense experiences, some intense initiations. Um, nowadays, the most important for, thing for me is to just keep my mind really, really clear. And I just have a meditation practice. 
and the and I could I could talk about that all day because it's always changing and I'm always learning new things. But fundamentally, I don't know, Ryan, do you have a meditation practice or something I, I, that's analogous to that? Um, very minimal, and I and I, I would it's definitely something that I would like to explore, and am. Uh, <laughs> it's on that to do list of oh, I'll get to that later, and I know I need to get to it more immediately. But yeah, I mean, mine is a very simple. Uh, you know, daily sort of ritual of prayer and certain things that I'm, I guess, uh, trying to be aware of uh, gratitude. It's mostly gratitude. It's less early, earlier in my life. It was much more uh, seeking intercession and intervention. And at this place, I don't know that I necessarily believe in an interventionist deity of, uh, you know, that's, uh, uh, you know, wish fulfillment sort of uh, God is genie, um, you know, do, you know, please let my favorite sports team win this weekend. Um, mm -hmm. That's always been a little difficult for me. And, uh, and I'm, I'm less and less inclined to believe that. But there's, I, I suppose, yeah, in a daily sense, I, I, I have a 10, 15 minute uh, part of the day where I'm recognizing and acknowledging something bigger than me and communicating um, whether it's, whether there's anybody on the other end of the phone has <laughs> been debated by uh, philosophers and uh, theologians much smarter than me for, for uh, hundreds of years. But yeah. Uh, but yeah, to answer your question, that, that that's about what I have, but I, okay. That, that makes sense. Certainly open to having more. <laughs> well, that was, yeah, that was helpful to, to hear that because yeah, it helps me clarify what I'm doing currently. Mm. So, you know, COVID has occurred. I've heard and, of it. Um, yeah, COVID is this thing happening, <laughs> and which has led to a lot of isolation and just a lot of time. I just, over the past two years, I've had a lot of extra time. And um, during that time, I've made really wonderful changes in my meditation practice because mm. I've been able to do it every day. Um, before this time, it's always, it'll come and go. Like I'll be into it and I'll really be feeling the flow and really be connected. And then I'll get super busy and or go on tour or whatever, and then fall out of it. But this has been the most, this last two years has been a time where I've really been able to sustain it. And um, it's, I've, it's just been like, so such a wonderful change in my life. And um, how do I describe it? I guess that um, um, through daily meditation practice, I don't know, about an hour a day, usually doing something and, and like the form of a change is sometimes it's a moving meditation like Qigong, sometimes it's seated meditation, uh, sometimes it's these other so Taoist esoteric practices. Um, I have been able to like look inside myself with great clarity. Um, I can see and perceive my subtle body, the energy inside my body called prana, chi, whatever you want to call it, um, essence. Um, I can see it and I can move it around inside my body. Um, and it's a relatively new discovery. Like I've had like moments of ability to have this sort of um, interplay with my energetic system over the years but with consistent practice, it's now easy to access. 
Mm. Um, and so that's kind of where I'm at now in my life. It's like, oh shit, this is like, a, it's like being in a different world. It's like living a different sort of life when um, one, I am aware enough of my thinking mind, my monkey mind, whatever you want to call it. And I can catch myself so much more quickly when I start to spiral off into anxious thinking or uh, just like being in these thought loops, these like useless grinding thought loops of just thinking and thinking and thinking about stuff that has no purpose at all other than to just satisfy that insatiable monkey mind. Mm. Um, I'm so much more likely to catch myself early and say, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to take that energy that I could expend on this mental masturbation and reap it like a harvest, like bring that energy down from my mind where it could be dissipated and wasted in these, I think, somewhat destructive ways and brought into the heart center or brought into my root and let it nourish me, uh, let it stay within my body and become uh, a source of energy and inspiration rather than just spew it off into the, into the ether. Um, yeah, it's a trip. It's like weird to like, um, you know, read, um, you know, I, I've always been interested in meditation and Eastern, call it Eastern practices and alchemy, that, which is our kind of hidden Western practice of meditation and internal energy manipulation. And I've always read it. Like I've always, you know, read, Zen mind, beginner's mind, and like understood it intellectually, it maybe just had these tiny glimpses of what he's actually talking about. But now at 44, and you know, after years of somewhat diligent practice, I've begun to just barely glimpse, like, oh, that's what they're talking about. It, it's not what I thought it was. It's, it's, um, it's not an intellectual process. It's not a somatic process. It's something else. It's uh. It's working with the energy of the heart, really. It's working with this, and I think most of us experience it daily as love, the feeling of love, uh, the feeling of centeredness, the feeling of being in yourself and connected to yourself, your true self, your deepest vision and purpose. Um, and the work of meditation is to stay there, to call yourself back when you're in danger of drifting off into discursive, useless mm. looping thoughts gosh it, it particularly resonates with me when you describe it as looping anxious thoughts because i struggle uh you know in western medicine what's diagnosed as obsessive compulsive disorder and uh, so that's a, a difficult one for me and what's interesting about what you're describing is i feel that a conversation like this one exactly this one in this particular moment gets me to almost that meditative state, uh, which is uh, rare, but is a, a big reason for, you know, my workaholic monkey brain structuring these conversations into my everyday life <laughs> at, via the, the podcast medium as the vehicle, as the excuse really to do this, that I wouldn't otherwise be doing this. You know, there's something- Oh, I really, feel, I really feel that. You know, yeah, I really feel that I, I've received um, so much knowledge from podcasts. Like um, there was a time in my life um, when I was, oh, I don't know, 33. Um, around the time, yeah, 2007, 2006, the, 2007. The Christ age. It was the Christ, it was the Christ age. Yeah, yeah, yeah it was definitely the trippiest time of my life. And um, that was kind of the early days of podcasting. 
mm-hmm. uh, when it was like really a thing in the culture. And I, I really remember receiving a lot of really useful transmissions, like spiritual transmissions from the heart, from the heart of Christ, from the heart of Buddha, these enlightened beings um, coming through podcasts. It was a trip, like to, as someone, it was my first time when I started to really have to kind of come against my anti-technology, anti-civilization mm-hmm. views that I held, I grasped so tightly um, because I was being healed or being enlightened, or not enlightened, but being um, taught um, through this, through the, the thing that I thought I hated and uh, to have to sit with that contradiction um, well, that's like a, it's like a Zen koan to, to sit with a question that has no answer and um, abide with it and uh, just see what's there. Now, you mentioned early, and I suppose this kind of brings us full circle a little bit. You mentioned early in our conversation that you only own a handful of books. And on, on the one hand, that's fascinating. You know, I, I, there's the, uh, the filmmaker John Waters has one of my favorite quotes, which is, if you if you go home with someone and they don't own any books, don't fuck them. Uh, having, having said that, I think about all the, the variety of books that I own, but then how rarely I'm actually cracking them versus, you know, how, how much of my book collection is artifice at this point. Uh, so I, I, I can only imagine, uh, as you said, from a very young age, you were uh, obsessed with, with reading and immersing yourself through the, the written word. Is this, is this because you're getting books and you're passing them along? Like, how, you know, how, how does one such as yourself end up with only having five books in your house? Well, I think I burnt my candle at both ends for too long with mm. the practice of reading and receiving information through reading. And nowadays I look at a book and it's just like, I, I just don't get it. Like, I don't, I don't receive information that way anymore. I think I might have burned out my neurons that allowed me to look at a book and receive anything useful from it. Mm. Um, The books that I do have are more like um, ritual artifacts. Mm. Um, God, what a great way to put it. Yeah, it's more like the, uh, they're totemic or talismanic to be more specific. Um, Perhaps in the way that a Bible was in the Catholic church before people would like read the Bible, it was, this is the book. It like contains this energy and this magic. I mean, you see, you see, there's a Bible behind me as we're speaking, and I, Lord knows the last time I cracked it open. <laughs> it's very, it's exactly as you're describing, in a lot of ways. Yeah, yeah. a totem. Yeah, it's it's a totem, and um, it's interesting. Yeah, I, and it has a lot to do with meditation as well. Like, I've become so fascinated with my inner landscape, and um, feel so satisfied with with what I already have inside of my own body, mind, and spirit. Mm. Um, I don't really want or need anything else. Like I don't need any other ideas. Um, If anything in my life, I'm in the process of sloughing off ideas, sloughing off concepts. This is how it is. This is how things were. This is how things work. This is how things should be. Um, This is my particular take on the late medieval period. I don't know. It's just, it just, it's not very, um, it doesn't feel supportive for my personal work now, which is to come into myself more fully, um, to hear my own voice more fully 
and to be able to be more in easy and direct contact with my heart, um, which is the heart of the universe, the heart of Christ, the heart of Buddha. It's the same heart that we all share. I mean, that's, that's my source of knowledge currently. Um, and this could change. I could get back on a tear and, um, and be entranced by the magic of the written word again. But certainly now, um, I think I've read enough. And um, mm. it's, it's what's inside that is so intriguing and feels like I've just kind of scratched the surface of what's there. You know, and you said something about, in terms of being true to yourself, that part of that truth is the, the constant evolution, the fact that you are living this and evolving in it on a daily basis. Because oftentimes I think when, when we use phrases like, you know, keeping it real or being true to yourself, uh, we tend to think of it in terms of like having a stalwart adherence to certain values or certain points of view or a certain identity. And something I'm becoming more comfortable with as I, you know, continue on this journey on, on this uh, floating rock in space that being true to myself is accepting a, that uncertainty. And instead of being so convicted about all the things that I know to be true, surrendering to um, the multitude, the vast wonder of what I don't know. And that being true to myself is allowing myself to go on that journey much further, rather than thinking that I have to be stuck in a fixed point and that that's some sort of means of, that there's some victory and, you know, uh, which isn't to say there aren't certain certain truths that I, that are that don't remain consistent because there are but i guess i'm i'm ascribing a lot more power to one of those truths being an openness to uncertainty oh yeah yeah it's um yeah it's just so clear to me that anytime we think we know what's going to happen it's just castles made of sand it's just uh, a construction of the ego mind to make the ego mind feel comfortable mm. about the truth that we do not know what is going to happen. And um, attempts to control what's going to happen are slippery, short-lived, incredibly difficult to achieve, exhausting, and ultimately fruitless. Um, and that's that's not where the heart moves from. The, the mind does that. The, mar the mind has these machinations and concepts and schemes about how to make things happen. That's the, the, the mind that prays for the interventionist God to mm. get a new car or whatever. Mm -hmm. It's that. It's that process. Um, the heart just knows. And the heart is always ready to receive um, what is to be given by the earth and by the cosmos. Um, and that's just how it is. I think that any, any time we believe that there is something else occurring, I, I don't think that that's, has much depth, uh, deep truth to it. I, I tend to experience that as an ego mind construct. Um, one of the books I do have is the Tao Te Ching. It's actually not true. I don't even have a copy of the Tao Te Ching anymore. <laughs> I, I consult, I, my divinatory practice is based on the I Ching and I use an app on my phone because I don't want to have to carry another book around. 
and I don't have the uh, I don't have the Yarrow stocks that's required to do it properly. Um, and I think that's where I feel the most at home in this uh, in this Taoist concept of just finding that point that you can't point to between action and inaction, between utter receptivity and coming at life with a full vision and purpose of who you are and what you want, what your desires are. Um, and it's in that slippery and infinitesimally small space of utter contradiction, the line between yin and yang, that that's life. Like that's where life unfolds and occurs from in the space that exists and does not exist and is continually inventing itself in every moment. Um, and coming around, that's what meditation is. Like meditation is becoming comfortable in that space. And I think that one could easily call that Christ consciousness if one wanted to look at it through that lens, through this Christian lens, which I'm willing to do. Um, like I would not choose to be a Christian, but in some ways I'm, it's been forced upon me by my ancestral lineages. And so I'm fine with um, uh, using that imagery and mythology and connecting to that image of radiant love and pure compassion and with utter receptivity um, to what the universe has in store for your soul in whatever moment. Um, yeah, I'm not sure I was going with that, but well, you said you can't. You said you can't predict what's going to happen, but you did uh, accidentally, maybe perhaps uh, serendipitously uh, predict what I was going to say about my, you know, my relationship to the Christian faith. <laughs> you just described it to a T, and that that was me even coming around to that identification twenty years ago. I think was an acceptance, as you said, of that ancestral lineage and uh you know painting my uh, spiritual picture with that color palette and and that's what has made uh you know i mean there's certain I, I, there are certain easy identifiers that i use to describe myself that um at a certain point you just have to let go of of well, what's this other person's perception of what that means? You know, I tell someone that I'm vegetarian or tell someone that I'm vegan, you know, what did they, what baggage are they bringing to that? Well, it's not, that's not mine. I don't have to, I don't have to own that. I can, I know what I'm, what I'm saying. And if there's a deeper conversation about it to be had, awesome. And if there's not, well, then it's a, a simple and, re and reductive means to an end to communicate a lot and a little and uh not to denigrate a faith or a worldview by putting it in that same sort of category of you know you know calling calling yourself a cinephile and what that might mean or not mean but um that's uh, christianity to me and that's been christianity for me for a long time and it's easy for me to get caught in the trap of of really wanting to shake my fist and and make sure that everyone knows the kind of Christian that I am not. You're but a I'm, cool Christian. Exactly. Yeah. Um, <laughs> exactly. The, the punk rock pastor. Uh, and I would rather, yeah, I'm, I'm getting a lot more comfortable in just being what I am, you know? And uh, that work is harder yet more rewarding. 
why did you, um, what, what happened that you decided to accept that? To be a part of that, uh, I don't know what's the word. Like to, I'm not. I, I was going to say to take on that label as being a Christian, but that's mm. not a, a very useful way of talking about it. What makes you a Christian? Like, when did it happen? Why did it happen? That's a great question. I think that there was ultimately because I was, you know, much like your uncle that you described, although, although certainly not with the same uh, spirit of adventure or experience. Um, I was a seeker. You know, I was raised with the those Christian ideas coming from different directions, but was never comfortable with the, with orthodoxy, I suppose. Became interested as a teenager, a lot of it finding it through music, much like finding ideas about paganism and, and things like that through Scandinavian bands and so on. You know, I was also into the hardcore punk scene and discovered Krishna consciousness through the Chrome mags and 108 and shelter and bands like that. And, um, was never a Krishna devotee, but but it was an important inciting incident in terms of exposing me to a whole you know Eastern thought and philosophy and a yeah. whole other um, culture outside of the uh, Judeo-Christian paradigm. And then in, in getting into activism and things like that and reading about MOVE and uh, the American Indian movement and the spiritual components that were wrapped up, wrapped up in those things. And then, uh, you know, someone like Muda Baruka, who's a uh, you know, a Rasta dub poet with a, a spiritual trip. And, and, and it's interesting. Another thing where we connect is you were talking about the way that black metal connects with certain elements of your spirituality in those intangible unseen ways. I felt that and, and continue to feel that uh, listening to bad brains and that's without getting into the weeds of, you know, and that's, and that's like a problem with a lot of religions, right? When you start digging into the, the people who, are, who have uh, put these ideas together, let alone those who are, are practicing them. I'm so much less interested in that. You know, I, I, yeah, I know Dr. No is a guy that works in a grocery store. You know, I know that HR has, uh, you know, um, struggled with uh, mental illness and, and uh, you know, had brain surgery in recent years. I, I can separate all of that from the experience that I get of listening to the bad brains and feeling mm. that there's a certain like connection and a spiritual yearning and a, uh, there's something in there in encountering all of those things, a lot of them through music. You know, I was always kind of exploring. Um, I had friends who, when I was in my twenties, a handful of friends who through activism found uh, Islam and joined, you know, became you know, took the Shahada and uh, started living by the Hadith. And, you know, some of them on the more esoteric Sufi Shia side, some of them on the more, uh, you know, rigid, I, I guess you could say Sunni, um, not quite the, uh, you know, Saudi Arabian ISIS version of Islam, but but people who were, you know, the, yeah. the Wahhabi yeah, who, who took it. Um, yeah. You know, and people whose life experience was somewhere to mine. I mean, people that were, you know, grew up in the Midwest and were into the hardcore punk scene or were into metal and, and suddenly were, you know, militant Muslims. Uh, and being around all of that and always kind of exploring. And I, I sort of, I, I came to a point, I suppose about 20 years ago, uh, where I, I recognized that whether it's, it's cultural as an Irish American 
and all of the inherent contradictions that come with the conflicts in Ireland, uh, you know, whether it's being raised with Catholicism on one side of my family and Protestantism on the other side, it's uh, where I felt comfortable, where I felt um, a calling, so to speak, to explore a lot of these ideas. And at first it was very simple. I went with that whole idea of the childlike faith and, uh, you know, I haven't tried just giving into this. What happens if I do that? You know, if I stop trying to figure everything out, because I was, I was on that, you know, not to, not to make a bad shelter pun, but I was on that quest for certainty for a long time. That exploration was about it solving the mathematical problem. Like, well, I want to find the answer, you know, what's the answer. Yeah. And, uh, in more recent years, I'd say the last 10 years or so, realizing that that's the wrong question and being more comfortable in this uncertainty. And I've gotten really into um, a number of different theologians who, whose work is kind of within the Christian framework, but is pretty radical in terms of what one would associate with orthodoxy or certainly, you know, the... Uh, American tradition that is descended from this Puritan traditions, um, you know, the superstition, the, uh, the corniness, the silliness, um, whether it's faith healing, whether it's uh, the political side that gets people get caught up in. None of that has, has anything to do with me, but I'm also being more careful not to, uh, there was a moment where I felt like I had to, you know, in the same sentence as saying I'm a Christian, I had to say I'm pro-marriage equality. I don't believe homosexuality is a sin. And, what, and these and all these things are true, but um, I'm even less worried about, you know, making sure that people know I'm not the wrong kind of Christian. Uh, Indeed. That's really, it's interesting. Who, what's, what's the name of one of the theologians that you're currently moved by or inspired by? Peter Rollins is my absolute favorite. That's Peter his Rollins. Work is the stuff that resonates with me most. And yeah, and I, I can, uh, send you in his direction and uh he you know uh whatever he has a, a thing called pyrotheology and as its name would suggest it's a lot of uh burning things down uh very black metal in that sense uh he's been accused of christian atheism yeah i, I don't know that i would do his work justice I, he, he's uh, i i know him a little bit I'd say we're friends, but we're not like in regular contact, but he, he's more been more than willing to come on the podcast. And it's been something I, I've realized that I've been putting off because I, I sort of, uh, I don't know if I'm, if I'm putting too many expectations on, on myself for what that conversation should be, because it should be a conversation like this, <laughs> but um, yeah, I'm so sort of uh, into his work that um, I want to make, I guess I want to make the best of whatever that conversation is, but he's Irish. Uh, yeah. Yeah, he lives. Yeah, he, he lives in America. But, and you know what's funny? Damn, <laughs> it didn't occur to me until you said that. Like you just, you just tied together what I was saying like five minutes ago. I never made that connection. I mean, I know, I know he's Irish. He has an Irish accent. I know he, you know, has a thing he does every year in Belfast. I never connect. You know, as 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 you as just hearing from you all this idea of ancestry and lineage and and region and the earth beneath our feet and me saying, yeah, I've, I've recognized it culturally and this and that, and this is where I'm comfortable. Yeah. It didn't even occur to me until you just said it, the, the idea that he's Irish and that that's somewhere in, intertwined yeah. with his work resonating with me more than anyone else's right now. 
Yeah, that's interesting. Oh. Yeah, you if just, I do, you, you just did I, something for me. <laughs> that was pretty amazing. It's the, it's, it's, it's the luck of the Irish. Yeah, if, <laughs> I, I, do, I, I do have, I mean, I don't, you know, shout out from the rooftops because it's so culturally loaded. Yes. But I do have a personal relationship with Christ in my heart as an archetypal figure. Mm. And it comes down from the Irish lineage. It comes from my Catholic Irish grandmother on my dad's side. Um, I feel all my ancestors really strongly, but she's the one who's, I think, most present in my life as a, um, God, it's really, I mean, I can just feel her so strongly right now. I can just feel her aura. It's like the color of her hair and her eyes and this strong Irish blood. Um, and it's through that lineage that uh, whatever that is, whatever this Christ consciousness is, this mystery. Um, I threw my Bible. I had a Bible that I would keep. I, I literally threw it away because for me, um, the Bible is totemic, but it's wrapped up. It's like, it's like the old Zen thing that um, about pointing at the moon and then people become, people look at your finger and they think that you're supposed to look at their finger, but no, mm. it's the moon. Mm -hmm. And so the only, the image that I draw from Christianity is the, the image of Christ of pointing at his heart. Mm -hmm. You know, like, it's not something you can put into words. It's a, it's a, it's a feeling that comes into your heart. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, I feel it on that Irish, that Irish side. And for all of the admonitions against idolatry that are, uh, central to the Christian faith in so many ways and it, what Christ was doing and was about on earth. Um, and this is, uh, <laughs> I know there, I know there's a significant portion of Christian listeners to this podcast and it'll be interesting to see the feedback that this comment gets, gets for me. But um, I believe in uh, more often than not, the Bible itself is an idol. Sure. In the worst, in the worst possible way, mm -hmm. sometimes. Um, yeah, the, you know, a book like that is anything, it's everything, and it can be anything to any one person, depending on how it, as a magical uh, physical object that incarnated into the world, I think it's multi, I think it's infinitely, um, how do I put this, I can see, I can even see it in my mind's eye right now, it's like, you know, we experience this book, but it's a fractal that infinitely expands up and down and all around and human beings can interface with it through any one of those infinite fractals. Um, it could be something that you beat someone with, or there can be a transmission of pure love and radiance that can come from it. Um, <laughs> as I mentioned earlier, yeah, I'm done with books. So that's a book I don't need around, <laughs> but, but uh, I do have a, an icon that is enough. It's like, that's like the Cliff's notes version. It's all I need. Mm. Love that, and yeah, and I love, and, and I, I feel a certain freedom in, in hearing your description of, um, you know, for what, and maybe it's cultural, but for, and as someone who was a voracious reader and, and still is, uh, I, I feel a certain guilt sometimes, feeling that I'm getting something spiritually or philosophically significant from a podcast or watching a lecture or a talk or, uh, yeah, I feel like this conversation has given me a little, a little bit more freedom to relax from that a little bit and go, oh, okay. this, is, this is part of how things are transmitted now, you know? It's oh, 
the Lord works in mysterious ways. <laughs> I almost said that earlier, but I didn't want to sound trite. Uh, it's yeah. a shitty cliche, sorry. <laughs> um, but that's my own, me not wanting to say that is my own uh, hesitancy about like, I don't want to come off like the wrong kind of corny Christian here. Um, yeah, well, uh, this has been magical, pun fully intended. Um I would love to uh, continue. Let's make this a let's make this an ongoing conversation. Love to love ha- you have all kinds of weird weird crap I could talk about. Yeah, I'd, I'd love to have you back for part two and three, and um, you know that's a, that's our linear Western minds right there. Anytime you want to do this again, I'm, I'm I, I'd love to do it. So it's been awesome. Cool. Thanks, Ryan. Yeah, man, it was yeah, it's great to talk to you. Yeah, I definitely stirred up some things inside me that I'd not really thought about and. I'm thinking about things kind of differently than I did before. So I appreciate that. Oh, so God times 10, <laughs> whatever you're feeling in that direction. I'm feeling, I'm feeling that like times 10, I could, I couldn't have put it better. And, and even, even just that singular moment. I know when I'm listening back and editing this, that moment where you're like, he's Irish, I just, you know, <laughs> sometimes there's things like right under your nose and then it takes someone else to go, Hey, look at that. <laughs> That's pretty, pretty profound. All right, man. Well, thank you, Ryan. Um, yeah. yeah. Blessings to you and uh, we'll be in touch. Yeah, likewise. All right. Cheers. Talk All to right. you soon. Peace.